Hello everybody, it's Colin Ellis here and welcome to another Culture and Coffee podcast. It's Monday the 24th of January and I'm sat outside the house this morning. It's beautiful. I'm going to take all of the opportunities to do all of the podcasts outside while I still can. It's a beautiful start to the day here. Uh, It's a little bit balmy but we've kind of got a courtyard at the back of our house which is really cool and there's kind of houses either side and our bedroom's just a bit upstairs and it's really early so I don't want to shout too loud Um, which that's the tendency right when you've got headphones in is to shout now I'm not talking to anyone to myself (laughs) well I hope I'm talking to someone Um, so the tendency isn't to talk as loudly but but what the research, research shows is that when we've got headphones in we talk 50 15 percent louder it should for some people it's 50 percent louder than they should but for most of us it's 15 percent louder and we just don't need to we don't need to that the 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 airpods all of the in-ear headphones they pick up our voice when you're talking at a lower level not even a normal level a lower level but we feel the need to shout for some reason there was a guy there was a guy jogging um must be a couple of days ago and it's so, so a couple of things firstly it was a work day and he was having a work call while running about 11 o'clock all these people are like all these people who say oh you can be just as productive out of the office like there are some people my wife went for her nails done the other day and she said the woman next to her was having a work call like having your nails done but anyway so this guy was on a work call while he was running for me that's super weird because like he's panting down his microphone he's panting down his microphone that sounds like a euphemism and what is the charge officer he was panting down his microphone um so yeah that you know like having a work call while you're running just totally completely unprofessional and then the second thing was like he was just shouting just proper shouting about stuff and um had, had I have followed him, I could probably have written down everything that he was talking about, but there's, there's no way, because I find it really, really annoying. Uh, like, I'm a good human being, want the best for everybody, but I still get annoyed, right? And particularly when people are shouting really, really loudly on their microphone, <laughs> starting my week off with a whinge. Um, so, yes, I hope we had a great weekend. Um, we managed to get sunburnt, which is a very British thing to do. It's still no better at doing that. I really do need to get better at doing that. Um, I'm going to talk today about psychological safety, but I'm going to start, as ever, with my coffee. Uh, Tanya, if you're listening, this is the bit where you skip ahead and, and wait for the culture stuff. I can believe there are some people in the world who don't like coffee. I know, I know. I, know. I can do an episode on tea. You just need to have to ask me. That's a very British thing, like, you know, I could, all of the variants of tea, and there are many. I should do one, actually. I might do that. I might. If, I can, if, if I can remember, I'll do an episode on uh, on tea and the origins of tea. I didn't really drink coffee that much when I was in the UK, because it's rubbish. Um, they, they don't have these little coffee bars. There's no real coffee culture. There's Starbucks and there's Costa. But it's essentially just a massive, massive cup of, of hot milk. Um, and there's no... That's, I, actually, I'm doing a disservice. If anyone's listening who, who works in Starbucks, I'm probably doing you a disservice in the UK. You probably put, like, tons of effort in. But, 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 but if you've been to Australia, if you've been to New Zealand, if you've been to Italy, like, it's a thing. Coffee's a 
thing, it's a culture. And when we arrived in New Zealand, it, it just fell into that culture. Um, uh, anyway, so this week's coffee is from Proud Murray Coffee Roasters. So I, I first I did Proud Murray right at the start when I first started doing the, the podcast because it's a, it's a massive institution, uh, Proud Murray Coffee. It's in all of the kind of tourists and guy books. I miss, I miss tourists in Melbourne. There's a real buzz about the city. And the Australian Open's on here at the minute. I don't think we've kicked all the tennis players out yet. Um, and you know, it attracts people from all around the world. There's so much going on normally. It, there's just a real buzz about the city. And like, you know, there's still plenty of people going to tennis, don't get me wrong, but it's just not the same. It's just not the same. Um, my wife and I were out in the city at the weekend and like, yeah, there's just, there just isn't that buzz. And it's probably the same in, in, in cities around the world. Um, so Proud Mary Coffee Roasters is one of those that's uh, always on the guidebooks that you have to go. And you do. You do have to go. Uh, so this one uh, is f- uh, from Panama. It's Panamanian coffee. It's called Mi Finquita. Mi Finquita. And I did, um, ever, since, ever since I've read the, the, the book recently, I've been loving the kind of uh, Central America coffees. So I'd look on the map at Central America at the weekend and just how many countries are packed into this tiny little space in the world. It's it's fascinating. The other thing about Mi Finquita, um, they are on Instagram. So I highly recommend go and check them out. So it's me, so M-I underscore and then Finquita, which is F-I-N-Q-U-I-T-A underscore. Me underscore Finquita underscore. Totally check them out. So what I love about their Instagram account is not only do they kind of show you where the coffee is grown, if you're interested, of course. I mean, if you're not interested, you know, don't don't go there. Just carry on watching videos of, of Adele crying about the millions of money she's got, millions of dollars she's got, and she doesn't want to perform. Um, but also the process as well. So you get to see the pro, not Adele, the coffee, um, the process by which they're grown. So there's lots and lots of, of great posts that show you the process of all of these beautiful, smiling people doing their best to eke out a living in Central America. If you, if you want to order... Uh, coffee beans. Most coffee roasters do, uh, uh, you know, do wholesale now, so you can order them. I, you know, I think if you're ordering them from Australia, firstly, right now it's going to take a million years. Ago. I'm still getting Christmas cards from people, it's, you know, like you know, a month and a half after they should have got here. Um, so, but Australia, New Zealand, you know, you can, you can order them. You can order Proud Murray beans, of course you can. Again, they've given them all funky names as well. The one that I'm drinking, this Meefinkita, is called the Bee's Knees. The Bee's Knees, I don't know if you know this. Like, fascinating. Bill Bryson's great for, like, loads of facts about where words come from. Uh, and he's written a couple of great books. Like, the last one of his I read, it was A Short History of Nearly Everything, which was just brilliant. There's so much information in it. Um, but it really got me interested in phrases that we use. The bee's knees is one of those phrases. In the late 1700s, it was used to describe something small and significant, so as small as the bee's knees. And around the turn of the 20th century, it changed to mean outstanding or the height of excellence. Uh, and the reason was is that... Um, as, as equipment became 
more sophisticated. You can actually see the bee's knees. See, not just the bee's knees, but other things as well. Is that um, that's where bees collect pollen. And so they store the pollen to their hind legs, which they then take back to the hive and eventually we get honey. Uh, and so that's, you know, it came this outstanding thing is that's what they do is they store honey in, in their hind legs. And so the bee's knees became this thing of outstanding excellence. So there you go. Anyway, enough of this. Let's get on to the... Let's get on to the... Oh, I haven't tasted the coffee. Hang on a sec. That's so good. Um, it's kind of got a stone fruit sort of plum. Beautiful, delicious. Uh, iced coffee, by the way. So what I do in, in the summer, so I brew a, a pot of coffee. I've got this big jar, which I bought when I was in Nashville. I did a... When I did a speech in Memphis... My dad came over to meet me and we did a little bit of a tour before we did Memphis. Dad came over because big Elvis fan. And we went to Nashville. We had a great time in Nashville, I have to say. And they had a, I did my research into coffee and they had this cafe place. I think it was called Bongo Cafe. Or, or that's the name of the coffee roast. I can't remember the name of the coffee shop. But they did these big jars and on the front it was called Bongo Juice. So I still got that big jar and I brew a pot of coffee pour it into the bongo juice jar, stick it in the fridge. And then all I do, I've had uh, a late morning, usually I don't drink coffee generally in the afternoon, is all I'll do is pour my coffee over ice. Anyway, psychological safety. I felt like I've talked about coffee for ages this morning. Let's talk about psychological safety. Not something that when I was young, we really talked about much. Not, not something that we concerned about, to be perfectly honest with you. It was... Um, you know, when you when when you look at the generations of work, obviously you've got the you've got the silent generation. That was the generation pre nineteen forty five. Then you have the baby boomers, and of course, I think I've talked about this in, in in the past before. Is people returning from war were used to orders being told what to do. do. They were used to planning. Um, they would be used to being told, particularly soldiers who used to being told, you know, you have to suck it up. This is what it is. You know, there's, there's no room for softness or whatever, whatever you want to call it. And so when they came back to work, obviously, they brought that discipline back with them. Yeah, particularly in Britain, there was this whole concept of the, the bulldog spirit and we'll fight, we'll fight. It doesn't matter whether you're at home or whether you, you fight or fighting. So from a baby boomer's perspective, that's very much the culture that they were brought up in. They were brought up in a, in, in a culture where they had to fight for everything. You couldn't stand on, you, 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 you couldn't be sensitive about stuff. And, you know, there was lots of stories about, you know, when I was in the war, when I was in the war, that was, that was the generation. As you get into Generation X, kind of, which is 19, kind of six, from 1965 onwards, what you get then is a group of people, and I've sound Generation X, what you get is a group of people who, who want to see the culture change, that you want to see it evolve. I remember, you know, I think I mentioned this in the past, when I first started work, my dad told me my emotions would get me into trouble. You don't want to show emotion in work. You want to get your head down. You want to, you know, you want to work hard. All of these really good things, but that, that emotions will get you into trouble thing really stuck with me because, you know, I was a pretty emotional kid as in, I was someone who talked about emotion a lot. I just talked a lot generally. And 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 so 
kind of being told to shut up and get on with it just didn't really, you know, it didn't really work for me. I, you know, I wanted that element of, of social. I wanted to be involved in decision making. I had opinions that I wanted, wanted to share. And generationally, the people above me were like, you know, you need to be seen and not heard, you know? And of course, generations since then, so gener we, had, we, had, we had Gen X, then we had Millennials, you know, kind of now Gen, Gen Z, is what they're looking for is, is for an environment where they believe they can bring their best self to work. Now, if you look, you look at statistics prior to, prior to the pandemic, like we're losing a trillion dollars globally to depression and anxiety. And of course, there's lots of factors involved in depression and anxiety, but a major one is, is, is how you feel about your workplace. You know, how, kind of how you get up in the morning, those thoughts and feelings that you have. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had days in my career where, you know, I've, I've kind of woken up in the morning and I don't want to go to work. And it's not because I don't want to do the work. It's because of the people around me. Now, there's that, you know, that old saying is that you don't, you don't leave your job, you leave your manager. And of course, the leaders that you work for have a, you know, have a big say in that environment. They do. They really, really set the tone. You know, and, and, and every employee around the world deserves the right to be able to kind of show up at work without fear of, of being bullied about fear of being harassed, knowing that they'll be taken seriously, knowing that they'll be given opportunity, knowing that they'll be involved in decision-making uh, processes, knowing that they'll be involved in the shaping of, of the culture, and knowing that managers and leaders will deal with anyone who seeks to undermine that safety uh, in the culture. And, and this is the thing for, for, for managers, you know, and, and for leaders when I'm talking to them about creating cultures, you know, that one, often they're looking at the financial returns. And, you know, I've mentioned in the podcast before, before that the biggest return you get is happy staff, happy staff who feel that sense of safety, who feel they can bring their best self to work every day, they can show up. And so leaders have got that responsibility to create the right culture to help people with their attitudes such that the prevailing mindset of the group is one of, one of growth and, and can do. And people demonstrate the right behaviours towards each other on a daily basis. And, and so leadership behaviour has this real, real impact on culture. Now, there's some great research done by McKinsey last year on this that demonstrated that kind of when leaders are supportive, when they're empathetic, when they're compassionate, when they're disciplined, when they're good at planning, you know, what we had 72% of people reported a positive team culture when leaders brought all of those things, when they consistently demonstrated those behaviors and provided a, a, a culture of challenge, and I don't mean one where you challenge each other, 
Um, well, well, it, it's, it's partly that where you create the environment where it's okay to do that, where it's okay to speak up, where it's okay to say that you disagree and then provide the reasons why you disagree. Um, but also one that where we're able to challenge ourselves to improve, to get better, all of these good things. Um, and, and, and so safety really is about creating conditions and then dealing with those issues that undermine those conditions. Now, in, in my world of work, what I, look, what I look for is is experts in these fields because there are people who have studied and researched and whose job it is to really kind of tackle these issues. So, so in the world of, of uh, workplace safety, it's Amy Edmondson. If you don't follow Amy Edmondson on LinkedIn or on Twitter, highly recommend that you do. And, and, and what's great about Amy, much like all of these experts in their fields, is that they not only share their own thoughts, is they look to curate content from others. So if you're interested, and you should be, if you manage staff, you should be interested in psychological safety. And I highly recommend that you follow Amy. Um, she said that, this is a quote from her, in 1999, right? And still relevant today. Psychological safety describes the collective belief of how team members and leaders respond when another member puts themselves on the line by asking a question, reporting an error, or raising a difficult issue. So the collective belief. So I love that statement. It's something that I share with managers because I get them to, uh, to, to, to kind of reflect on, on the previous week and say, all right, at some stage, a member of staff will have put themselves on the line. A member of staff will have put themselves out there. Collectively, how did the team respond? Was there a sense of eye rolling? You know, some people do that. Like action people do that real eye roll. Oh, God. It's Colin again talking about his coffee and his culture. Oh, God. Uh, some people instantly dismissive of those ideas. Yeah, that's good, but that's not what we're talking about right here. You know, you get people who talk over the top of other people. All of those things undermine safety. And it means that the next time I show up at an interaction... I don't, I don't believe that I'm going to be able to, to share in a way because I'm thinking at the back of my mind, I'm thinking they're just going to, they're just going to shoot this down. You know, they're, they're just going to, they're just going to poo poo my idea. Poo poo is a very English thing. They're just going to poo poo my idea and I'm never going to want to share it again. But that's right. That's what they're going to think. Because what we, you know, what someone, what the manager's done is allowed someone else to undermine the safety. And so it's as simple as, you know, talking about, so these are, these are the, some, of, some of the things that I used to do as a manager is, is talk about the, the fact that everybody, had, everyone's, you know, everyone's got an opinion. Our job is to consider those opinions. My job is to make sure we make a good decision. Like this, because you know, not the right decision, a good decision based on on that information. I think sometimes what we try and do, or what managers try and do, is, is is create too much harmony where everybody has a decision, then we overconsult, and that un also undermines the safety. There's a real challenge there when we take on too many people's opinions, um, and, and and so this is uh, this is, again, it's another one of those things that differentiates managers between leaders. And so, you know, a manager's job is to, is to make sure the safety exists at all times, to make sure people do feel able to share 
Um, and, you know, if, if, if you work in HR, these should be questions that you're asking on engagement surveys, you know, is how easy is it to share information? Do you feel heard? Uh, is your manager, you know, does your manager display empathy and compassion? Um, uh, also, is the language that you use in teams inclusive? And it's one of the biggest challenges that we have right now with, with remote work and with people not being in the same space. And so managers have to work extra hard on making sure that they, they don't use language that further undermines safety. Um, so, so phrases such as, oh, if only you were here. Like, you know, as we start to get back to the office, well, if you were here now, what you'd see is, well, immediately you're alienating that individual. So you can't say that. And, and again, if in your mind, when you're listening to this, you go, well, they should just toughen up. Well, they should be in the office. You really do need to start looking at your behavior. You really need to start thinking about the kind of person and manager that you want to be. Because, you know, we, what we want, in order to get the best collaboration, in order to achieve results, is we want that sense of togetherness. And you're never going to get that if you're thinking and saying those kinds of things. Um, uh, when you're back in the office, we'll catch up. No. I don't know. We've got the technology to be able to do that. Um, we're all just headed out for lunch. Again, what you're doing is undermining the safety. And, you, you, you know, you're unwittingly. I'm not saying you're doing all these things consciously. They may be unconscious. But, you've, you know, when it comes to safety, what we're doing, what we're looking for is, is ways of turning the unconscious into the conscious. Um, there, was, there was a... Um, I was part of a remote call for a client. It was a... It was a leadership team where we were talking about some upcoming work. And six of the leaders, five of the leaders were in the office. There was me joining remote and one of the other leaders was remote as well. And they ordered food into the meeting. And afterwards I said to the person, I just said, oh, to the, to the guys, like, can you just stay on the call? And everybody left the call and everyone left the room. And I had a couple of questions to ask him. And I just said, look, just in, in future, what you might want to think of is there was one person who wasn't in the room who didn't get the food. I was like, so just something to think of in future is that you might want to make sure that you order some food, Uber Eats, whatever, to that person so that they can have lunch with you. And like his first response was, that's why we're employing you to help us with this stuff. This is, I'm like, yeah, but the point that I'm making is you really should have thought of that. Like you really should have given that some consideration that you were all doing one thing and they were doing something else. Um, side conversations in meetings, alienate people on remote calls. Uh, for, let's have a follow-on conversation here in the office. Once No, none of that. So you really have to do think about all of those things, particularly can't mention locations at all. Um, the last thing I'd say about, about psychological safety is Google studied teams for years. I think it was, it was literally over 20,000 teams. And they looked at the dynamics of these teams and kind of listed the top five things that made them successful. And the number one was psychological safety. The number one thing out of all of those teams is can we take risks on this team without feeling insecure or embarrassed? Is it okay to share opinions without fear of being shot down? Is it okay to fail and learn without being blamed? All of these things contribute 
to the safety of teams. And if you're a manager, it's up to you to make sure that you 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 kind of take deliberate action and, and put in the effort to create an, a working environment that provides all employees, all employees uh, with the opportunity to share not only elements of their personal situation so that you can build better relationships and, and, and enhance kind of collaboration between individuals, um, but also information about their work such that they can make the right choices and they're able to deliver against the expectations that you set. And then employees, from, from, from your perspective, what you must do is have the discipline to deliver as you've been trusted to do. In psychologically safe teams, trust is assumed it never has to be earned. So that's it for your podcast this week. Safety, very, very important. Not something we talked about when kind of I was growing up, but definitely something that employees are looking for now. So if you're a manager, if you work in HR, it's up to you to make sure that action is taken to build safety into our team such that everyone can bring their best self to work every day. Have a fabulous day wherever you are in the world. Ta-ra for now.